we've been digging into the Beatitudes as a church family because there's no better place to think through whether or not you're a Christian. Because I hope by this time you've heard me say it over and over and over. These are not statements about how to become a Christian. If I could just get a hold of these Beatitudes and start doing it, maybe it'd make me a Christian. These are glorious declarations from the lips of our Savior about who's already in the kingdom and what they look like, how they think, how they live, which is radically different than the rest of the world, which is why we're calling the whole series Upside Down Living. So turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5, beginning in verse 1. It should be really marked up. You should be able to find it easily. We go there every Sunday. Matthew 5, beginning in verse 1. And seeing the multitudes, he went up on a mountain, and when he was seated, his disciples came to him. Then he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The word of the Lord. Now today all I want to do is focus on verse 8. Verse 8. And try to get our heads around what it means to be pure in heart. In other words, how would you know if you're one of these people Jesus is talking about with a pure heart? How would you know? If this is you, he's talking about. Well, here's the first thing I want you to understand. When you're one of these kingdom people with a pure heart, number one, you'll have a new desire that unifies and clarifies the place and priority for all other desires in your life. Now, maybe you're thinking, Brad, how did you get all of that out of pure in heart? Well, let me help you. You can get all of that out of pure heart when you begin to understand the word pure there does not just mean clean. It means far more than clean. It is a Greek word that has the sense of being unmixed or single. In other words, it's a word that means to be united and to want one thing instead of being divided and fragmented all over the place. So what is that one thing that kingdom people want? What is that new desire? It is is that when you've been born again, your eyes have been opened, you've been made alive spiritually, Jesus is real to you, you have a new desire now to please him and to live for the glory of God instead of your own glory. You want to make much of him Instead of yourself. Now, is that radically different in our world today? Oh, my goodness. Oh, my goodness, yes. In fact, here's what you need to realize about this phrase, pure in heart. Whenever the Old Testament talks about being pure in heart, it's talking about a heart that has been purified from idols. Or a heart that has been purified from putting other things ahead of God. That's why the psalmist said in Psalm 24... Who may ascend into the hill of the Lord? Who may stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart. And then he's going to unpack for you some more. So what's pure heart? Who has not lifted up his soul to an idol. It's the same thing that the psalmist was going after when he prayed in Psalm 86. And maybe as you read through your Bible, when you've seen this, you thought, that's weird. What's he saying? Psalm 86, he cries out and says, unite my heart. To fear your name. Bring it in, Lord. I'm I'm all over the place with desires and distractions and fragmentation. Unite my heart. Help me to be single-minded, to want one thing 
You see, kingdom people who have a pure heart, which does not mean sinless, it does not mean perfect, it means much more single-minded. Kingdom people are more able to keep life in perspective and to keep even good things, like kids, marriage, from becoming God things that you build your whole world around and set your heart on. Don't hear me. I wish I could tell you kingdom people have been set free from ever stepping into idolatry again. Not true. But unlike those who've been not born again and are still outside the kingdom, you have this new desire. Now there's a war. Your flesh still wants to go after the siren call of the world. Your flesh still wants to trap you into not just loving your kids, but worshiping your kids. Not just working hard in your vocation, but allowing it to consume you to become your whole world and sense of identity. There's still that danger. But kingdom people are way ahead of everybody else because there is this new desire that unifies, brings it in, and clarifies and helps you see things the way you should by God's grace and God's spirit so that you can fight more effectively against this. Their hearts are more focused, settled, and single-minded on what matters most. So what is an idol? I don't have a Bible verse for this, but here's my definition that I hope, I think captures what you see in the Old and New Testament. An idol is anything or anyone that begins to capture our hearts and minds and affections more than God. It's living on substitutes and trying to build your world around and set your heart on something in this created world instead of God. So what about you? Let me ask you. I'm not asking you, are you religious? You're in church. Yay. I'm not asking you, have you been baptized? I'm not asking you, have you ever joined a church? I'm not asking you, have you ever signed a card? I'm not saying, have you ever walked an aisle as they sang just as I am over and over and said the buses will wait? If you grew up Baptist, hello, you know what I'm talking about. I'm asking you, set all that aside. Anything you think you've ever done, do you have a new desire to please him? Not perfect, are, are you perfect? No, but do you have a new desire to please him and to live for the glory of someone else other than yourself and to promote the name and fame of someone besides yourself and to have a bigger perspective about life and kingdom and what's going on and to see this as temporal against the backdrop of an eternity? Do you have any new desire to please him and live for the glory of God? Kingdom people do kingdom people do but let me show you a second characteristic of kingdom people who are pure in heart number two when you're a kingdom person who's pure in heart you'll believe that the same god who no longer charges your sins against you can also wash you and renew your heart now, if you're sitting there and you're saying, duh, Brad, I, yeah, both. It's not duh, Brad. Why am I saying this? Because after being a pastor for over three decades, I keep running into Christians who believe absolutely that Jesus, absolutely that Jesus can forgive them of their sins, all of them. But they still live in the land of unbelief as to whether that same Jesus has the power to cleanse them and to wash their heart and to change how they think about themselves and their own identity and how they, how they believe God sees them and what they can and can't do next in this world. To truly wash them and cleanse them and renew them and change them. To begin to flush out the debilitating baggage of their past that so often haunts them on so many days still. In other words, they believe in the justifying work of Jesus to forgive them 
and to clear their record of sin that was against them, that their legal standing has changed. Yes, hallelujah. But they also believe that same Jesus didn't want to just clear their legal record of sin, but actually intended to cleanse them and change them, regardless of where they've come from, who they've known, what they've done. He's that powerful. His death and resurrection accomplished both, has the power to do both. He intended to do both. He wants to do both, but you got to believe he can do both. And there are many people who struggle with this. Let me illustrate what I'm talking about. If you're saying, what are you talking about, Brad? It's the man or woman who says, most often never out loud. Some people, if I have the opportunity to counsel them and sit with them and ask questions, they'll say it. But most of the time, these are people that just think it. They're in small group or community group, excuse me. They're in community group, and they think this. They're in worship, and they think this. They get around other believers, and they think this. Here's what it sounds like. This is the man or woman who says, oh, my life is so full of baggage. I've seen things I shouldn't have seen. I've done things I shouldn't have done. I have formed habits that I shouldn't have formed so that I now have all these twisted patterns of thinking and feeling and desiring that are all tangled up inside of me so that I can't imagine ever feeling set free or feeling and believing that I am clean in the sight of God and that he could begin to change me. Listen, the same Jesus, same Jesus who died and rose again to change your legal standing and record that was against you also died and rose again to cleanse you and wash you. That is why we've got four gospels, but that is why Matthew begins his gospel in Matthew chapter 1 verse 21 saying, call his name Jesus. For he will save his people from their sins. Now, I want you to pay attention to that phrase, from their sins, because here's what I think Matthew was wanting to talk about. He's not just going to save you from the record and legal standing that was against you in the sight of a holy God. He's also going to save you from your sins and move you beyond your sins so that they no longer characterize you or paralyze you or define you anymore. Jesus came to do both. Jesus wants to do both, but you have to believe he intended to do both and that his death and resurrection has the power to do both. That's why 1 John 1, 9 says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. Oh, but he's not done. And to, say it, cleanse us, marvelous word coming up, from all. Say it again. Say it louder. All. Oh, some of you need to hear that. You've got yourself in a category. Yeah, but. You don't know what I've done and the things I've done and seen and said and thought. And He's faithful and just to forgive us clearing of the record and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. What about you today? Where do you need to exercise faith? See, if you're here and you're a Christian, you already exercised faith to believe that Jesus could clear your record and save you from hell and change your standing before God. Exercise that same faith to believe and he can cleanse me, he can renew me, he can change me. Where are you living in the land of unbelief? And don't hear me saying, therefore, you're not a Christian. Can Christians have a mix of faith and still some unbelief. Praise God, yes. Yes. We're always still struggling. You take your mustard seed of faith. You can turn on the television this afternoon and get that version with the hair swept back, long eyelashes, and fast cars. Name it, claim it, blab it, grab it, send me money. And get that version of, oh, you've got to have an absolute, 100%, incredible, robust faith with no doubt No doubt, the reason you don't have all you're supposed to have and you aren't all you're supposed to be is because you've got a little bit of doubt. Praise God. He meets us in the midst of little bitty baby mustard faith with a mix of unbelief still. He'll meet you there. 
Remember the father that came with his son that kept throwing himself into fire? Jesus said, oh, if you believe, we can solve this. And he said, Lord, I believe. Help thou mine unbelief. Jesus healed him. Bring your mustard seed of faith that you believe Jesus died and rose again to change the record of your sin against you so that you'd be justified in the sight of a holy God. It's time for some of you to believe and move out of the land of unbelief that he can wash you and renew you and you are not a marked man or woman that's second class citizen in a special category. No. You need to believe he came to do both It starts with believing he came to do both, but it doesn't stop there. Let me show you that third characteristic, which is so much a part of this process. Number three, when you're a kingdom person who has a pure heart, ooh, you'll fight to be right now what you know you will be then on that final day. You'll fight to be right now what you know you will be on that final day. See, here's what I think is interesting. Praise God that there's so many glimpses of the future. Don't you like glimpses of the future? Helps me sleep better. Helps me orient the news. We've got glimpses of the future continually in God's word. I do not believe God gave us glimpses of the future simply to scratch our itch of curiosity. You know why you have glimpses of the future? Glimpses of the future were intended to motivate you to live differently now because you know where this is headed you know what's coming think about it i like football i'm I'm dvring the Bengals game so i can stand here and talk to you like i don't have a care in the world and not rush off aren't you glad and but here's what i've learned when i watch a game and i make the mistake of looking at my phone so that boom my nfl app already told me that they won i don't turn it off i watch differently i don't get as worked up They're down three touchdowns. It's okay, we're gonna win. I'm just like, I am so excited to see how this comes about. Is it gonna be Mixon with a long run? Is it gonna be A.J. Green with a one-handed catch? We win, we win. I don't turn it off. I watch differently because I've had a glimpse of the future. Christians live their lives differently because he has shown us the end, not just with new heaven and new earth, but us, where we're headed, who we're gonna be. And it doesn't cause you to lay back and say, oh, well, then why try? Uh-uh, uh-uh. You think even, you think even about 1 John chapter three. Go there in your Bible and look at it. 1 John chapter three. Let me show you just one example of what I'm talking about. 1 John chapter three, beginning in verse one. Behold, What manner of love the Father has lavished upon us that we should be called children of God. Now look at me a minute. I hope that doesn't fall flat on you. I hope familiarity has not bred contempt. I hope the ignorance of our world has not caused you to treat that less than what it is as very special. We are not all children of God. I know every time the world gets together and a bunch of rock singers get together to raise money for farmers, they all hold hands and they love to talk about we're all children of God, all children of God. We're not. We're all created in God's image. Everyone has dignity as an image bearer. Everyone is a creature created by God. But news alert, only those who have trusted Christ are adopted into God's family with full inheritance and rights and privilege and are children of God. That is precious. You're a child of God. No longer an enemy. No longer outside the kingdom. No longer outside the family. God is no longer angry with you but sings over you. Somebody say, hallelujah. Wow. Behold what manner of love the fathers bestowed, lavished on us, that we should be called children of God. Therefore the world does not know us because it did not know him. Beloved, now. Not one day somewhere. Well, one day we'll be children of God. Beloved, now. We are children of God. And it has not yet been revealed what we shall be, but we know that when he is revealed, we shall be 
like him. For we shall see him as he is. Right now we get glimpses of him through the scripture and by his spirit. But 1 Corinthians 13 says, now we see through a glass dimly. But then, anybody know? Face to face. We're going to see him And as we see him, we will be made like him. Oh, but don't stop. Read verse 3. And everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. Now, I want to walk you back through these three verses and ask you some questions because I want you to get a hold of this. Look at verse 1 again. If you're here and you're a Christian... You say, I've been born again. My trust is in Jesus. Who does he say you are? Child of God. But there's more. Look at verse 2. What is it that you know about who you're going to be? Like him. And you know it. You know it. You know it. But right here is... What I wish more Christians understood and they stopped too soon. What is the effect that knowing this has on kingdom people right now? Look at verse 3. They begin to purify themselves. I hope that doesn't confuse you. Like, what? Why would we do that? We're going to be like him one day. See, kingdom people never talk like this. Oh, Woo! One day I'm going to be made like Christ. Hallelujah. Right now I'm a mess. And I'm going to stay a mess to the glory of God. And I'll just wait for him to do the heavy lifting on that final day. Hallelujah. Kingdom people don't think that way. They don't talk that way. Because they have a new desire. They have a new desire to please him and live for his glory. They know that the Father's love has been lavished upon them. They've been bought with a price, adopted into God's family, given a robe of righteousness, filled with God's spirit, given direct access to his throne day or night, given an inheritance equal with Jesus Christ so that they no longer want to go on willfully sinning. They don't want to. They have a new desire to begin to fight to be now what they know they will be then. Because they know they're not wasting their time. This is a part of what God has called them to. This is how this works. See, here's the thing. It's interesting that the word hope is also right there in verse 3. We know, right? Those who have this hope in him, they purify themselves. The word hope in the Bible is never used the way we use it today. You think the Bengals can beat the Buccaneers? Well, I hope so. That means no. That means I've got nothing. I've got no reason to truly. That's not biblical hope. Biblical hope is a confident expectation of future blessing. And it's based on something. Based on the character and promises of God. When you have real hope, it motivates you towards real change. He came to forgive you and cleanse you. This is what you're going to be one day, someday. And so you begin working on that now. Knowing where you're headed and what you're going to be changes how you live now because you're motivated to prepare for it. Let me give you another illustration. All throughout the Bible, the analogy is made that those of you who are kingdom people, who are Christians, there's a marriage, there's a wedding coming. And right now, you are engaged The Holy Spirit is the pledge or down payment or engagement ring. When you said yes to Jesus and put your faith in Jesus and submitted to Jesus and said, Lord Jesus, you got an engagement ring of the spirit of the living Christ in you now. But there's more coming. That's why Revelation talks about the wedding, marriage, supper of the lamb. We're going to be married to Christ, which is why there will be no more earthly marriage. So let me ask you this. If you're here and you're married, you don't even have to be married. You've got friends that have gotten married. When you get engaged and that guy asks the question, will you be my wife? And she says yes, and he gives her a ring. Do the two of them run out and say, I need to sleep with as many people as possible because I've only got a few days left. I'm going to be married one day and it will be sex only with this one person. So God forbid 
You start being pure that day you get engaged because you know you've made a commitment to this one and it changes how you live now in light of that date on the calendar of a wedding. Does that make sense? You're engaged to Jesus Christ and it causes you to say, now, even more so, I want to be pure. I want to be single-minded. I want to focus on what matters most. I don't want to be giving my heart all over the place to other things of this world. He's named me, he's claimed me, he's called me as his own, he's given me an engagement ring, he's my bridegroom. There's a wedding feast coming and right now I wanna live pure for him. You begin to fight to be now what you know you will be on that final day. And you don't fight in your own strength, please know. You're not just trying to pull yourself up by your bootstraps. He's given you everything you need. Second Peter 3 says, we have everything we need for life and godliness. You got the resurrection power, spirit of God in you. The word of God is now alive to you. It makes sense. You've got direct access to his throne day or night to come boldly, not timidly. You've got brothers and sisters in Christ around you to encourage you and exhort you and help you. You've got new resources you did not have before to fight against sin, but fight you must. It won't be easy. It'll be a fight, but you have new resources. And listen, John's not the only one that talks this way, 1 John chapter 3. As you read your Bible, you will see that James, Paul, Peter all talk this way about believers purifying themselves. So don't make a mistake here. Look at me so no one leaves confused. These verses we're looking at now have nothing to do with you trying to purify yourself for salvation. Look, God, how hard I'm trying and I'm cleaning myself up. Please save me. Call me a Christian. Make me, oh no. Salvation, justification happens in a moment by grace alone. It's a gift. Through faith alone, nothing you do. In Christ alone, plus nothing. But after he saves you and puts his spirit in you and an engagement ring on your hand and gives you all the resources of direct access to his throne, he's called you to actually work at purifying yourself. We're a part of the sanctification process. That's why James chapter four says what it does in verse eight. Draw near to God and he'll draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts. And again, here's the same concept. You double-minded. Doesn't mean try to be perfect, try to get all the sin out. No, try to have a heart that is more single-minded, single-focused, understands what matters most, isn't fragmented all over the place. Purify your heart, you double-minded. You can't say you want this and you want to please him. You can't live for money and say you want to please him. You can't live for sexual pleasure and say you want to please him. Purify your heart, you double-minded. And Christians still struggle with that because your flesh still wants to respond to the same siren call of the world that is out there. So it's, it's a fight. Purify yourselves. It's the same thing Peter was talking about in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 22, when he says, having purified your souls, not talking about salvation, having purified your souls, how? By your obedience to the truth. He's not talking about salvation. He's talking about the process of sanctification. See, the Bible never talks about believers justifying themselves before God. But it absolutely does talk about believers purifying themselves by the grace of God and the power of God and the spirit of God living in them. How? By their obedience. As they begin to read the truth of God's word and seek to obey it. Oh, man, you get saved. Does everything just change immediately? Immediately I want to give away large amounts of money. I doubt it. Immediately I realize I shouldn't gossip. I doubt it. Immediately I realize I should be humble and the first or last and all that servant stuff. Yeah, I just wanted to lay down my leg. Roll over me. No. You're still very much alive, but you read your Bible and you're like, oh my goodness, here's how I'm supposed to handle my money. Oh, here's how I'm supposed to think. By your obedience to the truth, you begin to purify yourselves and make progress in looking more like Jesus and living for the glory of God. Bishop J.C. Ryle says this, and I quote, in justification, our works have no place at all and simple faith in Christ is the one thing needful. 
in sanctification. Our own works are of vast importance. And God bids us, you think about the words in the New Testament as you read the letters to the New, in the New Testament to churches, bids us to fight and watch and pray and strive and take pains and labor. Not to be saved, but because you are saved and want to become more like Christ and you want to live for his glory. In other words, the Bible is passive, has us as passive regarding justification, but very active regarding sanctification. Effort is not a bad word, but a very very biblical word regarding sanctification. We've got Christians that have thrown the word effort out because it's not true about justification. Yes, you've got it right. But Christians have made a mistake saying, I don't have to do anything. It's let go and let God. It's all grace, hallelujah. News alert, that's not what the Bible teaches. Regarding your progress in the Christian life, and sanctification, it is not let go and let God. It is recognize what God's given you and put forth effort by his grace and by his spirit and with his word and with his people and crying out to his throne of grace to become more like who he's called you to be. Effort. This is how the Bible talks. Now you think about it. Consider for a moment. See, I think confusion over this point that I'm pressing, is the reason why we have so many Christians, so-called Christians, who make such little progress in the Christian life. You ever wondered, you ever wondered why some believers show marvelous evidence of spiritual growth, while others just tend to look like an older version of exactly who they were when they came to faith in Christ? And, and it has nothing to do with background. You say, well, this person came to Christ and they had a gnarly, horrific, awful life. That's why it takes them. No, you can see someone like that get saved. And in two years, oh my goodness, the maturity and, and what's changed. And they look like Jesus. And someone else just come from a very uncluttered, uncomplicated life. And it just looks like, where's the change? You ever wonder what's going on there? And and why you see it? Have you ever wondered why some Christians get free from the baggage of their past and others just stay stuck in the same place with the same hangups? I'm convinced that a big part of the answer is lack of clarity over this point that Christians do not realize our responsibility to engage in the process of sanctification, to put forth effort, to pursue holiness. I'd be so bold to say this. If you're not putting forth effort, you are probably not making progress in the Christian life. I did not just say if you're not putting forth effort to become a Christian, just trust Christ. Bow the knee, ask for mercy. But if you say you're a Christian, if you're not putting forth effort, you are probably not making progress in pursuing holiness and purity and becoming more like Christ. Let me give you two more sub points as to why so many Christians fail to make progress. A kingdom person with a pure heart, ooh, here's what they do. You're willing to confess specific sins. We thumped this once with one of the other Beatitudes, but I wanna touch it here again. In other words, you need to realize this. You'll never change and grow or make progress in fuzzy land. Well, I know I'm a sinner. Yes, yay. Tell me three of your specific sins right now that God's pointing out. Deer in the headlight. Just saying I know I'm a sinner as if parsley on the side of your plate or a hood ornament on the front of the car doesn't get it done. I mean, by God's grace, as you read his word and by his spirit and you're praying, you're saying, God, what am I not seeing? You're humble enough that you allow other people to speak into your life and tell you what you're not seeing. And you're aware of, right now, I need to be working on gentleness. Or right now, I need to be working on avoiding looking at wrong things with my eyes. Right now, I was convicted through the Proverbs series about gossip and slander. Right now, I realized from the early in the year about giving and money that I'm very selfish and my security's in money. I need to give away. What is God showing you? specifically that you should be working on by his grace and focused on right now. And some of you aren't gonna like this, but if you can't name two or three specific sins right now, you're probably not making progress. 
We pray all kinds of prayers and we say, I just don't feel like God's answering my prayer. Let me give you a prayer that he loves to answer. God, show me what I'm not seeing about me. Show me what I'm not seeing about me. God, show me a couple of areas that are hurting me the most in my life and it's hurting others around me the most and it's hurting your glory and the fame of your name the most. Give me two or three, God, right now that I could specifically begin to focus on and try to put together a plan. What, how do I need to think? Is there scripture I need to memorize? Should I draw in the friend of a brother or sister to help me here and be accountable? Show me specifically areas that I should and could be working on. See, consider 1 John 1, 9 again. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us. That word confess is the Greek word homologeo. Two Greek words, homo, same. Legeo, word, same word. When you confess, you're saying the same thing about it that God says about it. In other words, you stop making excuses and you call it sin. You stop relabeling it as something other than sin and you say, I'll say about it what you say about it, God. It's not just, well, that's who I am. Oh, that's just, I got that from my family. Oh, that's part of my personality. I'm an otter. No, you're a child of God, otter, beaver, golden retriever. I don't care what personality test you took. Be a more Christ-like otter, Christ-like beaver, Christ-like golden retriever. To the glory of God. Woof. This, there's just, there ought to be progress. And it's going to look different in different people's lives. But what should be similar is progress. Progress. And you're aware. Ooh, right now God is kind of focusing and showing me. Now here's what you need to be ready for. We'll pray prayers like, God, show me. You know his favorite way to answer that? It's not finger on the wall like Book of Daniel. Many, many, tickle, tickle. You need to. That's how we want it. Just direct God to me. You know how he loves to do it? Through another person. And all of a sudden, someone else is bringing you a correction or a rebuke. And you're like, whoa, 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 whoa. I don't want to hear this from you. I know all your problems. God loves to use other people to tell us what we're not seeing about ourselves. Be humble enough that when he begins to answer, you'll receive it. They confess specific sins. It doesn't stay generic in fuzzy land. But let me mention something else regarding this that I think is why so many Christians fail to make progress. And it's this, kingdom people who have a pure heart, they're not surprised or ready to quit every time they fail in their fight against sin. Oh, listen to me. Nobody makes uninterrupted progress on the path of holiness. Nobody. Nobody. There'll be times you stumble and fall. When you begin to set your sights on working on and repenting of some area that has held sway over your heart, ooh, it's going to be a fight. You will not have a victory every day. There's going to be times that you fail and you fall and you stumble. So don't be surprised and ready to quit when it happens. In fact, here's what I'd want you to hear, and I hope this encourages some of you. The people who make the most progress in the Christian life are not people who never fall. They're people who, when they fall, they don't keep laying there. They get back up. They don't just look, because here's what happens. I assume it happens to you just like it happens to me. When you fall, your enemy's right there, and he begins to lie to you saying, look at you. You call yourself a Christian. You can't possibly be a Christian. I can't believe you thought something like that. You still did something like that. You still wanted something like that. You don't listen to the lies of the enemy. You lay there and you say, yes, agree with your enemy. I'm a great sinner. And that's why I need a great savior. And you get back up. You get back up. Jesus already died for all of it. You get back up by God's grace and by his spirit. That's why Proverbs 24, 16 says, for a righteous man who really reads his Bible, gets in a community group and understands what's going on, never falls. A righteous man falls, how many times? Seven times and rises again. That's why Micah 7, 8 says, do not gloat over me, my enemies, for though I fall, I will rise again. Though I sit in darkness, 
There's times that you're just in darkness saying, oh my goodness, I can't believe I'm still. Though I sit in darkness, the Lord will be my light. There's a light. There's hope. I'm not done. I'm not done. I'm going to get up again by God's grace. Kingdom people are going to fall. They just don't stay down. But here's, here's what also is part of this. Let me give you a final point, what kingdom people with a pure heart looks like. Number four, you'll start feeding on God's word instead of just reading God's word. There is a difference, and I'm going to try to unpack it for you some. Oh, listen to me. The joy of being justified in a moment and forgiven and the record of your legal standing before God changed entirely as Christ's righteousness becomes your righteousness all happens in a moment. But the joy of being progressively washed and cleansed and becoming more like Jesus and thinking more like him and pleasing him more is a process, stay with me, that happens in conjunction with God's word. And so now we're bumping right up against another reason why so many Christians fail to make progress because they fail to read God's word. I know we live in a day, and I hear it all the time, well, I'm not a reader. Please get over that. And it's on audio. If you have to listen to it, if you have to pay a friend to read it to you, if you have to give plasma and your firstborn for someone to come every day, you must have God's word. And here's what I think is interesting. Is God brilliantly wise beyond everyone else? He gave us a book. Oh, man, God blew it. Wouldn't he know that in this day and age, people don't read? It should be a video. God gave us a book. Get over this, I can't read. I had people in our church family say, I have never been a reader. I've never been able to read. And when God saved me and I was trying to read my Bible and I said, oh God, help me, I can read now. I had a guy grab me in a hotel at breakfast in another city who I didn't even know. He said, oh, let me tell you, are you Brad Bigney, blah, 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 blah. And I had encouraged him some way in my teaching, but he said, he was a rough looking guy that had been a hockey player and I don't know where, living a really bad life and God saved him and he couldn't read at all I don't mean struggles to read had never learned to read and he said my wife taught me I said teach me how to read taught him how to read and he has read the Bible multiple times he said it's changing my life I can read because he wanted to he said oh my goodness I've got to have God's word you think about it Paul said this in Ephesians 5, 25 to 26, Christ loved the church and gave himself for her that he might sanctify her. How? By the washing of water with the, say it, word. He is not going to just wave pixie dust across. He will not just land on you during the game this afternoon and make you more like Jesus. Sanctify them by the washing of the water of the word. It, word is essential. You want to become more like Jesus? You want to live differently? You want to be more clean? You want to have a better idea of your identity? You want to fight more wisely? You want to push back against the lies of the enemy? You got to have God's word. You got to be washed and renewed and reoriented in your mind. But here's where I want to push a little more. Here's what I hear. Even those of you that do try to read, because I say this all the time, so to your credit, thank you. Many of you give it a shot. I'm going to try again to read my Bible. But then you say, it's so boring, and I don't get anything out of it, and I just struggle to keep going. And Let me suggest something. Here's where I want to talk about the difference between reading and feeding. Okay? If you approach your Bible reading like some kind of exercise or a workout on the treadmill, you will get bored. Think about it. We pay people money called personal trainers, to meet us at the gym and show us 19 different ways to work the chest or the arm because it gets really boring when you do the same exercises the same way three times a week and you quit going to the gym. The same is true with Bible reading. If you approach this as exercise or the treadmill, you'll get bored and you'll miss so much of the nourishment that God's word has there for you and the power and the life change. I would like you to consider feeding on God's word. It doesn't take longer. In fact, it might, take, it might be shorter. 
It's not how long you read the Bible. It's, it's how you go about reading it. And I want to tell you what feeding is. Feeding is reflecting, applying, believing, thanking, confessing, rejoicing, and responding to God. So it's very interactive. You're not passive. I'm interactive with the scriptures. There's a pen in my hand. I'm writing things down. I'm stopping and praying a line. I'm saying, God, that is so not me, but it needs to be me. Or I'm like, oh, hallelujah, that's you ruling the nations. Thank you that right now I'm worshiping a little bit. I'm praying a little bit. I'm making a note of something I need to work. It's interactive. I'm feeding. I'm chewing my way through God's word instead of just eyes across words. Let me help you understand what chewing looks like. Very familiar passage, Psalm 1, 1 and 2, right? Blessed is the man. There's that word blessed that we're all over in the Beatitudes. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of ungodly, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he what? Okay, marvelous. There's a big problem. It's a very common verse, big problem, and it's that that word meditate in our English language, I think, does not communicate what the Hebrew meant to communicate. It's too passive. It's too tame. When we hear the word meditate, I don't think it's just me, we usually think of sitting in a quiet chapel with my Bible open and some flickering candles behind me. Throw in incense and, oh, my goodness, we're meditating now. Now, there's a place for that. I do enjoy quiet, reflective. But folks, the Hebrew word for meditate right there is haggah. And and what I just described for you doesn't capture it at all. In fact, that same word haggah is used in Isaiah 31.4 to say this. As a young lion growls over his prey, that word haggah was translated growl over. I know most of us don't spend time around lions, so think about your dog, right? Dog with a bone. You ever seen a dog with a bone? It usually goes down the same way every time. He or she will prance around it first. They want your attention. Look at this prize. Aren't I good? I need your approval. Once you say, yes, 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 very nice, they'll almost always drag it off to a private place, right? And begin to gnaw on it. Chew on it, crack it open. Is not is it not amazing what they can, you think they're done? Oh, they're not done. They're, they want to get all the good they can out of it, and they're not in a hurry. This is not a fast food moment for a dog. They're growling over it, licking it, turning it around to get all the good they can out of it. Hello, that's how we need to approach God's word. Take a phrase and chew on it, growl over it. Crack it open. Try to get all the good you can. Pray it. Rejoice over it. Don't be in a hurry. Growl over God's word and feed on God's word instead of just reading God's word. Raina Maria Rilke describes what we're talking about when he talks about somebody reading their Bible who he says, quote, listen to how he describes it. They don't just stay hunched over the pages of their Bible, but will often lean back and close their eyes over a specific line and read it again until it, until it begins to just spread through their blood. You want to get it down in you. You want to capture that. You want to think about that. Its meaning spreads through their blood. God's word outside of us is not the goal. God's word in us. I want to get it in me. In me. And that takes a little bit of time. Just slow down. Throw your head back. Close your eyes and say, oh, God, that's good. Or, oh, God, I don't understand what that means. Help me. Chomp on it. Bite it open. Give me some insight. Chewing. Now, here's what I want to do. I want to motivate you as to why you should start feeding instead of reading. So let me tell you where this is headed, what this could look like. Here's what you can expect if you head down the path of feeding on God's word instead of just reading it. Over time, I just lost some of you. It's not going to happen in a weekend. But over time, oh my goodness, over time you'll experience the cumulative effect of being immersed 
in God's word and it getting down inside of you and God's word like soapy water on dirty clothes as the machine, washing machine of God's word agitates, agitates, agitates so that the stains of your sin are slowly, gradually, and increasingly loosened from the fabric of your life and you begin to think differently and believe differently and see differently and fight differently, but it's as you're immersed in God's word and it begins to wash you and renew. The goal is not just information. Now I'll be super smart at community group. Whatever. I wanna be more like Jesus. I need some of the stains of my sin to be loosened from the fabric of my life. That's what God's word can do. It has the power to save you and it has the power to cleanse you and renew you and reorient you. Oh, if you're here and you're not a Christian, I'm so glad you're here. Come to Christ. Don't try to clean yourself up. Don't try to purify yourself. The starting point is simply humbling yourself and saying, oh God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I'm a mess. All of us were too. You've come to the right place. Save me and clear the record of my sin and begin to wash me and begin to work from the inside out by your word. But if you're here and you're a Christian, hmm, and maybe you've been living in the land of unbelief as to who you could be and how you could feel about yourself and what you exercise faith that he can cleanse you. But it's not going to happen apart from God's word. Begin feeding, chewing, cracking open so that it gets down inside you and begins to transform you from the inside out. Oh, God, thank you for your word. Thank you for your son. Thank you for your spirit. And thank you for doing for us what we could never do for ourselves. The power that we've talked about today to save us and the power to change us is all outside of us. There would be no hope for any of us if you had not first broke into history, stepped into our world, took on flesh, humbled yourself, kept the law, and then laid down your life to die and rise again to break the chains of sin. Oh, God, thank you. Thank you. Make us more like your son and use us in this world for your glory. We pray in Jesus' name.